this series kind of discussing this topic of Lent, we should probably get like a baseline of understanding of what I'm even talking about when I use that word. All right, so Lent is this 40-day period minus Sundays, okay? The 40 days, not including Sundays, that lead up to Easter. And this is typically a season within the church that is marked by um, self-reflection, often the practice of fasting, is kind of seen as a time of lots of repentance, confession, prayer, and charity. And as I said, the season leads up to the season of Easter and is often seen as a time to sort of prepare for Easter. As it begins on Ash Wednesday, which was this previous Wednesday, and will continue on until the final Saturday before Easter, often referred to as Holy Saturday. So if you are even vaguely familiar with Lent, you are probably somewhat familiar with one or more of these elements. Whether it's the 40 days of fasting, the ashes placed on the forehead on Ash Wednesday, or just generally understanding this time to be one of self-reflection, confession, and prayer. But where do these elements come from? What do they mean? Why are they significant? Why does so much of the historic church continue to practice in these elements year after year after year? Well, I think in order to answer these types of questions, it can be helpful to dive into a little bit of scripture here. So we're going to dive into a passage found in Matthew 4 and see uh, what answers it has for us in terms of these elements of Lent. If you have your Bibles, if you have your phones, uh, feel free to pull it up. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. The passage is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, and it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. So just in reading this passage alone, we can begin to gather where some of these common elements to Lent come from. We see this 40-day period is reflective of Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. We see this common practice of fasting is clearly associated with Jesus' own time of fasting, this time where he entered into this great physical need and frailty and longing. And so if we can start to piece some of this together, then what we see is that what Lent is, is an intentional stepping into this experience of Jesus. And so then the only question becomes, why? Jesus had a lot of experiences, a lot way cooler than this one. <laughs> Why is this one the one we are intentionally seeking to step into? Why is this the one we're choosing historically again and again to relive ourselves? 
And I think in order to answer that question, we have to first understand what makes this event so significant for Jesus himself. And what makes this event so significant for Jesus is that it takes place before any other significant moment of his public ministry. It takes place before his public ministry even really begins. You see, before any teaching, before any miracle, before Jesus is going to seek to bring bring redemption and restoration to all of humanity, what he will first do is seek to intentionally enter in to the fullness of that humanity himself. Before any parables, before any miracles, before he's even called the 12, his first and primary priority is to step into the temptation, the turmoil, the frailty, the longing, the desperate need that simply comes from being human. What he is doing here is intentionally seeking to intimately know, to feel fully the burden and the weight of what it means to be a human in a broken and fallen world. Of what it means to be human in a world marked and stained by sin. And so if during the season of Lent, it is now we who seek to intentionally step into this experience, what that means is it is now we who intentionally step in to the temptation, the turmoil, the frailty, the longing, the need that comes with being human. It is now we who spend 40 days meditating and reflecting, seeking to intimately know and carry fully the weight and the burden of what it means to be a human in this world marked and stained by sin. Doesn't that sound fun? (laughs) Look, there's a reason this season is initiated with ashes. Ashes are not typically a substance associated with letting the good times roll. The season is initiated as ashes are placed on one's forehead in the sign of a cross, and the following words are uttered. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. These words are a direct quote from the exact moment in history that sin first enters the world. These words bring us back to Genesis 3, when sin and death will first make their mark. When humanity and all of creation will be introduced to a darkness, a darkness God never desired them to know. We get a glimpse of this moment here in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. 
Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? As Genesis 3 goes on, we come to find the exact answer to that question. We find out very clearly what Adam and Eve had done. As we are introduced to a whole host of repercussions and consequences that will bleed out from their decision and will begin to permeate all of God's once good and holy creation. Now what we need to understand about what is happening here in Genesis 3 about everything we are introduced to in this chapter and every chapter following. Something I think gets very lost in the midst of our very important, very big, very highly disagreed upon questions regarding God's relationship to evil. Right, where did this sin come from? If he created everything, did he not create this? If he's all good and he's all powerful, why didn't he stop this? Why'd he even allow it? Couldn't he have created differently? These are all heavy, important, and as I said, disagreed upon questions throughout history that deserve their own series, multiple series. (laughs) But what we need to understand this morning is that regardless of what you do with those questions, regardless of how you answer them, of what theological camp you end up in trying to seek answers to them, what must be understood, what we can all agree on, what is clear, what happens here in Genesis 3 is not good. Sin and all of its consequences the most significant of which we will see being death itself. These are realities that God's once good and holy creation were never meant to know. While sin, and especially death, in this life, can begin to feel so common, unavoidable, natural, Our souls continue to cry out when in its presence. There is something deeply abnormal here. There is something here we were never meant to experience. Death is the opposite of all that is good, of all that is whole, of all that is pure. And so it will continue to offend our souls that were once meant to only know abundance and life. It is something always to be grieved. It is our most natural, reoccurring reminder in this life. Something is not right. Something has gone terribly wrong. And we see here in this chapter, death... It is not just physical. It is, in fact, physical. It's where we get this term, right, from Genesis 3.19. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. 
This is physical death being introduced to humanity. But we see also, even in the passage we just read, that death can also take on a spiritual form. In verse 9, So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And, I said, I, and he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Where once there existed a trusting, safe, secure, and fully vulnerable relationship between God and humanity, there now exists a shame, a fear that causes man to hide in guilt, cowering from the God he was created to run to. This is spiritual death, something we were never meant to know. And we see finally there is also relational death. In verse 12, the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. These relationships that were once meant to be life-giving, necessary, beautiful, are now marked and stained by resentment, by blame by betrayal. The ashes used to initiate the Lenten season, they are a dark and stark reminder. Death in all of its forms, physical, spiritual, relational, these are realities we were never meant to know. And yet, they are now a part of our everyday experience. They are now the only reality we know. And so during Lent, we acknowledge this and we grieve it. And we allow it to usher us into a time of repentance. Now boy, has that word been used and misused and abused so many times. The word repent, once a good and holy word, now marked and stained by sin, has introduced us into a darkness we were never meant to know. <coughs> a darkness that looks a lot like legalism, moralism, teachings like repent or burn. A darkness quite similar to the one Adam first experienced in the garden. I, I heard your voice, and I was afraid, so I hid. We must be clear here, church. Repentance was never meant to mean we hear the voice of God, and in our shame, and in our guilt, and in our fear, we cower and we hide trying to give ourselves our own clothing, trying to cover up our shame, trying to fix it and get it right before the eternal consequences come knocking. No. What repentance means, simply put, it is to change one's mind. It's to think differently. 
If you are a visual learner, you're in luck. Because repentance, it is an active term, meant to be walked out, not just talked about. So I'm going to give us a little visual, okay? To, I'm like, warming up. All right. To repent, it is to be headed in a certain direction, to be going in a certain way, and then to stop, to begin to change one's mind, and then think differently instead. It's to be going one way, to turn, turn not just away, but also toward another way, a new way, a different way. And so when we say that Lent is a time of repentance, what that means is it is a time to first and foremost acknowledge the way that we are headed, acknowledge the path that we are on, whether it is through ashes or fasting or reflecting or reading or meditating or going on a walk, we in some way seek to intentionally step into what is this path that we are on and this turmoil and this grief and this suffering that comes with it and the sin and the death that surrounds it. And then we stop. And we begin to change our mind. We begin to think something isn't right here. No matter how common, how unavoidable, how natural this way seems, something here is something we were never meant to know. Something here is terribly wrong. And then we turn. We turn not just away, we turn toward a new way, a different way as we think differently about sin, about death. We refuse to make peace with it. We refuse any longer to participate in it. We refuse any longer to ignore its effects and its damages over our life or the lives of others. We turn away and we turn toward a God who has given us a new way, who has provided for us a way out. There is a reason this season is used as a means to initiate Easter. It is because these 40 days, no matter how hard, no matter how overwhelming it may feel, it is by going through this repentance, by going through this process, that we are put in the perfect posture, that we become ready that we begin to long and are, are set up perfectly for receiving God's perfect and good and holy provision. Lent is certainly not a cheerful time. Okay, No one wants to think on sin and on death and on the turmoils of being human, and yet we as believers, we do. We willingly step into such thoughts, step into such acknowledgement because and only because we truly believe. We have this outrageous faith 
that there is a God who is able to redeem and to restore all of it. We are only able to truly face and carry the weight and the burden and the gravity of sin so much as we are able to believe in God's power over it. I love the way um, this Methodist minister, Jan Richardson, she, she wrote a poem reflecting on Ash Wednesday, and I think it puts it beautifully. It's called Ash Wednesday, Blessing the Dust. So let us be marked, not for sorrow. And let us be marked, not for shame. Let us be marked, not for false humility or for thinking we are less than we are, but for claiming what God can do within the dust, within the dirt within the stuff of which the world is made, and the stars that blaze in our bones and the galaxies that spiral inside the smudge we bear. During Lent, we will intentionally step into a season of feeling fully the gravity and the weight of sin and death. And through repentance, we ready our hearts be ready our souls to turn instead toward a God who has power to restore both. Now convenient for us, this is also the exact posture we will hold as we enter into the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth could not be a more perfect book to set the scene for a broken and seemingly hopeless reality. Within its first five verses, we will come to see death in all of its forms. We will find that the story takes place during the time of the judges, a time scripture defines as absolute chaos, a time of complete disobedience when man is doing seemingly everything possible to distance themselves, to run and hide from their God. It is during this time we are introduced to a woman from the nation of Moab. <coughs> this is a nation that neighbors Israel, a nation that has a long-standing conflict with them. Simply put, these are a people that the nation of Israel longs to see crushed and destroyed. We will learn that this woman's husband has died, leaving her no provision, no rights, no means to survive on her own. And so she will cling to her mother-in-law, a woman who has had her fair share of suffering through famine, the death of her husband, and now the death of her sons. We will see that these women are quite literally surrounded by death in every form and every shape that it comes in. And they are left only with each other and the God they have entrusted their lives to. These women enter a wilderness season 
where they will carry the weight fully of what it means to be a human in a broken and sinful world. They will come face to face with their frailty, with their longing, with their need. And so theirs is the story we will cling to as we do the same this Lenten season. And our hope is that as we look through the eyes of these women and we see the radical, unforeseen, unorthodox and completely unexpected means and methods that God uses to provide for his people, especially in the most hopeless of circumstances, our hope is that it will build for us a resolve. It will build for us a confidence, a strengthening of our faith that this God can and will do the same. If you find yourself entering this season of Lent, much like Ruth's mother-in-law, feeling as though God has brought you back empty, feeling like bitterness is all that you are, feeling as though grief has overwhelmed your identity, would this season of Lent, would the story of Ruth remind you God does not ask you to hide this aspect of your humanity. He does not ask you to get over your grief, to look past your turmoil, to look for the silver lining in your most hopeless of circumstances. No. He is not that insecure. He is ready for you to face it, to face it fully. He invites you to look it all dead in the eye without fear. Because in that wilderness, in that grief, in that longing and in that need, that is where his power and his provision will be found. That's where we're going to head over these next six weeks, and I couldn't be more weirdly excited. I won't wear all black all the time. Promise. All right, church, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what heavy realities, Lord, we live with. What heavy realities you are asking us to face. Lord, would you be near? As we step into this season, oh God, would you just be present in ways unforeseen, in ways that just sweep us off our feet, God. Would you help us to enter this season with boldness and with confidence? Lord, knowing it is preparing us, it is readying us, it is getting us excited, Lord, for the season to come, for the season of endless provision, of, of perfect power, of the loosening of the grip of death, the removing of all of sin's power over our lives, God. Would you help us to be ready for that season? Would you do what you need to do in us, Lord, in our hearts, in our lives, in our friendships, in our relationships, God? Throughout these next 40 days, would we lean on each other? But most of all, Lord, would we lean on you? 
knowing that you are about to bring so much beauty out of whatever dust we find. And pray these things in the sweet name and the sweet power of Jesus Christ.